Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Nathaniel Blake, postdoctoral fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Nathaniel is also a senior contributor to The Federalist and has written over 150 articles for them. He holds a PhD in political theory from the Catholic University of America, was a Richard Weaver Fellow of ISI, and served as an adjunct professor of American government at Wheeling Jesuit University. Nathaniel, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you for having me, Josh. And, and, and a special thank you for uh, joining me after uh, the troubles with the first recording. I so appreciate you being willing to come back on a, a take two. Hopefully it's better. If not, then we'll say that the first recording was amazing. That's it. That's it. That, that will have been the perfect one. Well, especially since uh, when we talked a few weeks ago, uh, none of the stuff with Disney had broken yet. None of the, the, the Disney law was still theoretical. Uh, but so much seems to have happened in this space about the uh, Parental Rights and Education Act uh, in the last few weeks. So I'm kind of glad we can have an updated conversation tonight. Yeah. Also turned out that uh, Jake from State Farm might have been a little creepy. <laughs> it's just possible. Just maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to avoid the temptation to bring up the Southern Baptist impossible creepiness. I've, I've been listening to too much, too much about that already today. Um, before yeah. we get into our main topic tonight, um, I did want to see if you could just help us know a little bit about you, your background, and the work you do with the uh, Ethics and Public Policy Center. What all kind of what all areas does your work focus on? So it's a little bit of a roving commission in terms of what I can write about, which is practically whatever I feel like and someone will publish. But um, my particular areas of interest as a writer tend to be social conservatism. So abortion, transgenderism, all of those fun, non-controversial topics. Um, <laughs> as a scholar, I've written on a few different things, including everyone from Russell Kirk to Alistair McIntyre to Hans-George Gadamer, who I think you also have an interest mm -hmm. in. So a focus there has been on philosophical hermeneutics and then trying to bring that into conversation with the natural law. And then an additional area of scholarly interest has been discussing the American heritage and the American founding and bringing out the different strands in that instead of viewing it as some people suggest, uh, people ranging from columnists like David Brooks and Brett Stevens at the New York Times to disciples of the late Harry Jaffa of Claremont, that America is basically a liberal project and that we should focus on refining the liberalism of America and rejecting the rest. And instead, I argue that no, America is a synthesis. In fact, you could call the founders political syncretists and that they wove together multiple disparate threads from the common law heritage to yes, some classical liberalism to their own experience with self-government to a sometimes disturbing obsession with ancient Rome and ancient Greece. Uh, if you look at the Federalist Papers, there are far more references to that than to, say, John Locke. Mm. So those are a couple scholarly areas of interest. Man, that, that sounds fabulous. I, I, I'm sure it has its its downsides and its rough days, but uh, it sounds like sort of a dream job to be able to write about really whatever you're interested in that, that kind of hits those different areas. I, I enjoy it. I, I'm so glad. Well, um, Nathaniel, I know we didn't really plan it this way, but I was struck by uh, maybe I'll, I'll just go so far as to call it perhaps Providence. 
that we were already planning to have this conversation today when uh, uh, about two hours ago in North Carolina, the uh, North Carolina Republican senators for our state uh, revealed that they've been working on the parental rights and education bill for the state of North Carolina. They just did a press conference. Uh, these are some of the notes I got from their press conference. Uh, they fully affirm the parental involvement in a child's education. They're trying to legislatively protect a parent's right to request classroom materials. Uh, they affirm that parents do in fact have a right to know about any mental or physical struggles that their children are undergoing. Uh, they establish particular standards for age appropriate content um, the senator specifically stated that gender identity and sexual orientation teaching, quote, has no place in the kindergarten through third grade classroom. Uh, their goal as a group of senators is to enumerate the rights that parents thought they already had. I thought it was such a fascinating way to kind of set this up as if parents have assumed time out of mind that they do, in fact, have certain rights uh, in regard to their children's education. But something has shifted in our actual education where uh, it seems that public education is trying to lock parents out. And it seems like we're on the cusp of kind of a major legislative movement to really push back against some of those tendencies in public education. What What are your thoughts on kind of all of that happening in North Carolina? Well, we're going to need a longer podcast for that. Um, <laughs> but to focus on a couple points quickly. One, I think you're absolutely right that parents have assumed, call it the goodwill, and the comradeship of the educational establishment in this country. Most parents have taken for granted that the public schools are more or less on their side, whereas we've seen a shift in that a lot of educators view themselves as having a responsibility to separate children from their parents ideologically, emotionally, if they think those parents are insufficiently woke, insufficiently progressive, however you want to say that, and in particular that has been focused on issues of LGBTQ and so on identity. I don't know the full acronym at this point. I'm not sure anyone does. <laughs> um, so that's where we're really seeing the debate. In Florida, it was labeled a don't say gay bill, even though that's not what it was. And I assume that similar tactics may be tried against this North Carolina bill, although they didn't work in Florida, so they maybe they'll have to change it up if they're going to try to oppose it. Uh, the the uh, I think the the the, the article that uh, our local newspaper ran, uh, WRAL, they uh, cited particularly uh, in the I, I wasn't able to find the actual bill text before our our, our uh, podcast today, uh, but the news article at least cited that uh, this bill will require parents to be informed if their children want to access school mental health professionals. And then if children re uh, request to be referred to by alternate pronouns, uh, parents also have to be informed. Uh, both of those two just strike me as like, those are things that really uh, shouldn't need to be said. And yet apparently we're in an era where uh, that does in fact need to be said. Um, I wonder if I could uh, pick your brain for just a moment, really uh, as a father, um, I, I remember our previous conversation, you have you have several kids. Um, what kind of obligation do you feel as a father, do you think is right for you to have in regards to their education? Do you feel a particular duty or responsibility to oversee their education and see that it goes in certain directions? Yes. Short answer, longer answer <laughs> is the reasons for yes. So first of all, 
uh, even though my children are young, the oldest is only two and a half, I am already educating them, right? Where do they learn things? Well, from my wife and I, more than anyone else. So then the next point is, should that continue in that vein, or do we simply hand them over to the educational establishment when they reach four or five, six or whatever? And I think the answer is clearly no, because the educational establishment will not know my children as well as I do. They will not love my children as well as I do. And they will not be invested in my children for the rest of their life the way I will be. So, and I think there's an old anecdote about, um, and I'm going to keep it vague because I don't remember the particulars, but the punchline I do remember. Uh, so uh, someone with, you know, teacher's union rep or something was arguing how I love all the children and uh, some Republican official or somebody replied something like, well, what are my kids' names? Right? <laughs> Someone who's Google, you know, has the time to Google that right now, can look that up and get the details, I'm sure. But the point is simple. Who actually knows and loves and cares for the children? It's the parents. Mm -hmm. And the state, yes, occasionally in sad circumstances, has to intervene where there is significant abuse or neglect. But that is not the norm. The presumption mm -hmm. is the parents are the ones who are the most invested in their children's well-being, who care the most, love them the most. And the state is a fail-safe in the event of you really of unfit parents, or it should be a helper in the event of, you know, in the much more common event of normal parents, or let alone great parents. So if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, then the kind of movements that we're seeing first in Florida, now spreading as far north as North Carolina, uh, these really are sort of a recovery of a natural sense of the right responsibility of parents and that kind of the, a, a closer, maybe a restoration to a recognition of the state as assisting parents in the task of education, but not the state as the sole source of education and sole authority in what that education constitutes. Yeah, and I think that really it's the latter point that is perhaps especially especially contested in the Virginia governor's race last year, which was, mm -hmm. to many people's surprise, won by Glenn Youngkin. A large part of that was the comments by Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic candidate, mm -hmm. that parents really don't need, you know, leave it to the educators. Parents don't need to be involved. They're not the authorities. Let the professionals handle this. Well, one, if you know an education major, sometimes they're not the brightest people or the best people <laughs> there are some of them are but we've all when we were in college if you were in college you remember there were some people you didn't think should be teaching children or if you just were in school at some point you had some bad teachers you had some that were just okay and then there were those wonderful teachers that many mm -hmm. of us have had but the assumption that oh the teachers always know better and the parents shouldn't be involved has raised a lot of hackles, rightly so. And consequently, we're seeing this movement that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And again, it comes back to ideological questions. It's not about, oh, what's the best way to teach children mathematics or reading? It's about who gets to teach the kids values and moral truths and 
questions of who they are. And that's something where even if we accepted that teachers are better at teaching mathematics, which sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, but should they replace the parents and the communities mm. that the parents are involved in as the teachers of what is moral truth or who you are as a person? And that's what brings us back then to the incendiary part of these bills, which is questions of sexuality and gender identity. I think that's a, a, a great point. And it brings us back to the, I think the, re the reality that there is no such thing as a value neutral proposition, at least certainly not in the realm of education. Uh, we do have everybody in education, whether they realize it consciously or not, has a good towards which they are aiming their, their efforts. They want to accomplish something. And I think it's really interesting that uh, of all places that we could see the uh, current tension points in American politics, uh, it's, it's back to education. And in, in many respects, it goes to as granular a level as pronoun usage in the classroom. Well, let's, let's shift for just a moment over to, uh, over to the article that at least led to our initial connection. Uh, we, we got together uh, for our first conversation after I read your article entitled, OK Groomer, why some in the LGBT movement are focusing on kids. Uh, and that was that article ran in public discourse on March 28, uh, 2022. I'm going to drop that link in the comments for uh, any of our uh, current participants if they want to see that. Uh, and uh, uh, but that in that article, you make a really interesting argument uh, that's looking at a lot of these issues. And, and it's from March. So it's from a couple months back. Um, but could you walk us through the argument that you make in that that article, particularly in terms of its connection to education and parents and, and children? What's what's happening in that in that article? So briefly, as we've just been talking about, there's been a real effort to focus on teaching children about sexual orientation and gender identity and a lot of pushback to that. So the question is, why? Why is that so essential to the progressive educational worldview? And I think the answer to that is found in the assumption based on popular arguments that I'll come back to in just a moment, that we are born this way. And that argument was tremendously successful for the movement for sex marriage. For instance, the argument we're born this way and therefore it's wrong to judge us. It's wrong to deny the value of our relationships. It's wrong to say that they're second class or not as good or anything like that. Those arguments were very, very successful. They won. Um, whether or not we agree, they won. So that has then been transferred to the entirety of this ever-expanding spectrum of sexual and gender identities. Children are born this way, whether it's you know, there was a song about it, Lady Gaga, you know, you know, gay or straight or trans or whatever. You're born this way. And there are, first, there's a problem with that, which is it's not true. But then there's the implication of that, which is children, if they are born this way, need to be affirmed in those mm -hmm. identities. They need to be educated about their identities because they are intrinsic and it is harmful to deny or repress those identities. So parents who 
do not embrace their children's new transgender or non-binary or whatever else identity are harming their children. They are damaging the children and therefore the educational establishment should protect the children, possibly social services as well. We're starting to see those fights come into being, which only a few years ago would have been deemed scaremongering, right-wing conservative Christian scare tactics. But now we're actually seeing it debated whether children should be taken away from their parents if their parents do not affirm their gender identity or their sexual orientation. So back to the problem, which is that it's not true. There was three years ago now, there was a big study that came out either in science or nature, I cannot remember which, but concluding that there is no gay gene. There is no genetic, dispositive just genetic basis for homosexual orientation. There are genes that seem to play a small role, but the researchers estimated no more than a 25% predictive force, I think, for whether somebody with these, and it was not simply one gene, it was multiple genes, but they did not determine whether or not somebody was a man would be attracted to other men or women would be attracted to other women. They maybe gave people a nudge at most. So that should have put to rest the born this way argument. Even if you try to throw in other factors such as levels of hormone exposure in utero and so on, the conclusion has, the scientific conclusion is now, we're not born this way. Um, there may be genetic factors that predispose people a bit more than others towards various sexual or gender identities or orientations. But social factors, psychological factors, environmental factors also play very significant roles. So consequently, the idea that children are being harmed if their parents don't accept these identities is not necessarily true. Right. If you want to argue, the LGBT side has been arguing it's all nature. And instead, if it is in fact nurture, suddenly the efforts to affirm and promote and educate about sexual and gender identities don't look positive. They don't look protective. They look predatory. They look well, mm. like they might be grooming. Are they... So the question of why is there an explosion in transgender and non-binary identification among young people in the last generation? Well, the born this way answer is it was all repressed. They were always there. They were just repressed. But the actual answer is no, they're being socially conditioned into this. And hence the usage of the term groomer not necessarily in terms of sexual predation, mm -hmm. although that certainly can happen. And there's the fact that if you're talking to children about sex a lot, that certainly breaks down some boundaries that should be there. 
Absolutely. enough trainings to the, in the education world to know that's that's in general something that you should not be talking about with students yeah. anyway. That really that that crosses the personal professional line in a lot mm -hmm. of harmful ways for for students. It does. Um, there is a great subhead to a recent piece by Joy Pullman, who's one of the editors at The Federalist. Wherever I go, somebody is trying to talk dirty to my kids on the government dime. <laughs> Joy's got a knack for the title and the subtitle. She's very good at yeah. that part. I don't know if she can claim credit for that one or not, but it was her article and it was just felt dead on as to what we're experiencing. But yeah, the question of are children being pushed into these identifications is a very, very much a live one. And my argument is, well, yes, they are because the other explanations have failed. They're not born this way. So why is there this sudden explosion in transgender identification and non-binary identification? Because they are being pushed there by various social factors that we can talk about or not. But I think that, wow. that reminds me of two things. Uh, first, I know uh, Abigail Schreier makes that argument for those social factors, mm -hmm. I think, very effectively in her book, Irreversible Damage. And she argues that uh, literally thousands of girls who are identifying as transgender boys are, uh, they are cultivated or they're, they're brought into that identity and into that conversation through uh, online transgender activists. Uh, she makes that case, I think, very effectively. Uh, it also lines up with, uh, this may be an odd connection, but I, I went through a, a Foucault period of, uh, of reading uh, just after college. I was determined to read the most convoluted, obtuse thinker I could find. And that was definitely Michel Foucault. And, um, uh, but by the end of his, uh, his book, um, it's called The Use of Pleasure, the second volume in the History of Sexuality series, uh, he very effectively shows that there is not a single sexual orientation amongst ancient Greek men, but rather it had everything to do with purpose. Is the purpose closer friendship that goes in this homoerotic direction or is the purpose procreation, in which case that's that's really what marriage is for. And that part of maturing was really, uh, he argues, is about uh, recognizing the importance of those procreative drives as being really important for the transmission of, of culture and civilization long term, which requires the development of self-restraint. Um, nothing of what he found uh, supported the idea that there was an intrinsic identity but rather the idea, it was something that was kind of taught from an older generation to a younger generation. And that, that seems to me what you're kind of getting at, that there is a way in which um, the part of why this become, has provoked such outrage, which I think is part of the, the genius of particularly the Florida bill, and I assume why later bills are keeping the age range the same. Uh, no one really should be talking about this with seven-year-olds anyway. <laughs> but... The idea here, like once people are responding to that and feel threatened by the fact that you say, nope, third grade, third grade and below, that's the line. Well, all of a sudden it seems as if like, well, we can't, we can't bring them into this tradition in a way. Uh, it's, it calls into question the very values of the education and the, the question of what is the education trying to help students become? I think there's a lot to that. I mean, and I don't think it's just Foucault practically anybody, I think, who has studied the classical world, both the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, would find it very difficult 
to reconcile that with the modern conception of LGBTQ identities. Can I just, I'll just call them rainbow identities. That's simpler. <laughs> there we go. With a, a, a nice meta, a good metaphor there, which perhaps maybe points to the, the way that Christianity works within the Western tradition to uh, really tame and change and define some of the impulses that were present in, in pagan culture. I think Christianity kind of enters the enters into the tradition with the sexual ethic of marriage and and really kind of isolating sexuality being lo or locating sexuality purely within uh, the marriage relationship. And so I wonder if there's a connection here between the rise of the uh, as you call it the rainbow identities uh, but also a decline in Christianity kind of in the West in general and a, a, an erosion of that, that Christian influence on a sexual ethic. I think so. And I think that part of this is simply that Christianity was the first sexual revolution. There's a great piece in First Things a few years ago that made that argument. I do not recall the author, unfortunately. But again, if you look at the classical world, or if you want to look further afield, other cultures before Christianity, the sexual ethics were completely different. The social ethos surrounding sexuality was completely different. And Christianity utterly changed how people viewed sex, how they viewed marriage and family consequently. Uh, marriage is a natural good, but it is also one that is easily turned into a relationship it's mostly about property, whether that is treating women as property or simply alliance building between households. And you can explore all the different factors of sex in the mm. ancient world from literal, from child prostitution to that was not seen with horror at the time, but simply part of how things were to infanticide, which is simply a more extreme version of the abortion we ourselves practice in our culture to the use of slaves for sexual pleasure. Um, and of course the unequal relationships that permeated all of that. So the even homosexuality has emerged differently post Christianity, hmm. but I do think there might be some reversion or at least some new elements breaking out in these rainbow identities and how they act as Christianity wanes, as people who adopt these identities have no longer been shaped by or are no longer conversant with the Christian world in the same way that, say, the generation of Auden, to take one poetic example, was. So maybe we kind of recap that. Uh, your argument is that in the uh, OK Groomer article, is really looking at the way that there's a foundational view about human nature that is, and there's one that's professed that people are born this way, but that's not actually what we found or what scientific study has found, but that instead people have to be brought into this way. And so that the reason that these bills have provoked such outrage is that they sort of reveal that there is a, uh, an attempt to bring students into this but without the awareness of parents, which I think is absolutely fascinating because they're, 
there certainly are some parents who I think would profess very progressive values and would not they would they would not be upset at at their children being introduced to these ideas at an age when they could weigh them. But there seems to be something very sneaky about keeping bringing this into the youngest ages before there's that ability to develop mental discretion and compare different ideas and decide which one somebody wants to follow. Yeah, or even have much of a sense of what it means to be a boy or a girl. Mm. I mean, if we're talking about preschoolers. The, <laughs> the understanding's a little fuzzy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 certainly true, and maybe that's a good transition to the uh, the other article I wanted to ask you about. Um, uh, you wrote an article for I think this one was for the Federalist: uh, How Liberalism Ruined Sex and Degraded Feminism. Uh, since the last time we talked, I've actually read the book that uh, you were you were interacting with there. Uh, if I remember correctly, that's you're talking about a review of Christine Imba's book, yes. uh, Rethinking Sex. Um, could you kind of walk us through what's what's happening between the connections between radical feminism and uh, make sure I get that that title right? Yeah, radical feminism kind of ruining. Uh, sexuality and ruining our understanding of human nature. What's what's happening there? Right. So I, you're actually one up on me. I still haven't read that book. I've read oh, okay. But <laughs> <laughs> so the argument that I made was simply looking at what I, the response to this book, which is not Emma's not a conservative Christian. Mm-hmm. I think her faith journey, or however you want to term it. She was sort of raised evangelical, converted to Catholicism. I think it's fallen away from that. But she, as a writer and a, I guess, observer of the culture, is noticing that a lot of young women are very miserable. And furthermore, that a lot of this misery is about sex and relationships. The sex is not good. The relationships are often not good. And take one example that she leads uh, some of her excerpts with and that I think then Goldberg in her review discussed. You've got a young woman who says, well, my boyfriend is great, except he likes to choke me a bit during sex, which is kind of dark and horrifying. And I, I, I will just mention that, uh, it, it, that I, I remember that section from the book and it was just awful and strike like the way the setting that that story takes place in is like they're they're at a conference. These are not like weird people. This is a this is a professional woman. She's some sort of high level. Uh, she, she, they're doing drinks before conference, and she's telling this story. And it's just uh, it's it's just bizarre to think that like this is her experience. But I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just was like that. That was a very gripping part of the book, for sure. I mean, I think Emma had an eye for that sort of Mm -hmm. anecdote that illustrates what the culture is like for even very successful young women. So obviously this sort of thing is fueled by internet pornography and which has become not just ubiquitous, but more perverse. Things that used to be very weird are now normal. So Emma is pushing back against this and she doesn't want to take it too far because she's still not willing to associate herself with conservative Christianity too much. And then Goldberg, New York Times columnist, Michelle Goldberg, responded in a review 
And that was what I really wanted to focus on in the call. Because Goldberg's response is, well, the problem is not that there's anything wrong with anybody's sexual desires. The problem is that women just aren't assertive enough in saying what they want and in particular what they don't want. So it's simply a communication and negotiation problem. The boyfriend wants to engage in degrading things, the girlfriend doesn't want to, and the girlfriend just isn't assertive enough. And what I was pointing out is, well, this relativistic stance won't work. One, because desire, the way it is structured, is that immediate and passionate desires are likely to win out over what we might call more long-term but weaker desires. So the desire for a loving, healthy relationship is likely to lose out to the pressure from the other partner for, well, give me what I want in bed right now. Mm. But additionally, we still don't have any way to judge between what is a good or healthy relationship and what isn't, other than personal preference. So there's nothing wrong this young man in Goldberg's account, in the liberal account, that she's trying to salvage this, I guess, third wave feminism, this sex positive feminism. Rather, what she's really trying, the problem is not the boyfriend's desires or anything. It's simply that we need a better way to mediate desires. But that is also not, it's not only not how desires work, it's not how culture and society and relationships work. Um, culturally, a lack of norms is in fact an endorsement of certain, certain norms, just as anything, you know, saying that all desires are equal will privilege certain desires, saying that all relationships, all norms, all conceptions of what is good in a relationship are equal will in practice privilege certain forms of relationship and so on. So the problem of, well, how does the young woman in this anecdote, anecdote get out? Well, she can dump the boyfriend. She probably should. But where does she go to find something better if the whole culture has normalized this? Mm -hmm. Because that's the immediate demand. Where does she go to find a young man who will treat her well? Yeah, I think you, I, I think you're onto something really important there that, um, I mean, Emma and Goldberg were pretty, I, I thought they were pretty similar in that they, uh, both of them are picking up on, they both recognize something's wrong, but they, they kind of stop before drawing the real conclusion. It, it seemed to me that the real conclusion is this ought to push us back to really ask questions like, well, wait a minute, what if the sexual revolution was actually wrong in asserting that there are no moral laws that govern this part of human activity? What if they were wrong that uh, anyone can have sex with anyone else as much as they want and no harm will happen as long as it's all consensual? And if, if those are actually wrong and if we're actually harming ourselves and harming others through consensual methods, we have much deeper questions to ask. But Embo um, particularly had some passages in that book where she sort of seemed to recognize it, but she didn't want to actually ever condemn anybody for anything. <laughs> That was the impression yeah. I got from what I've read. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
which which also seems to be part and parcel, I think, to uh, maybe try and stitch these two together, seems to be part and parcel of uh, the same problem that is trying to be addressed by these parental rights and education bills, that it's it's not a very high standard to 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 draw. It's, it's not mm-hmm. to say third grade, eight years old, <laughs> but even drawing that line provokes incredible outrage. Uh, we, we seem to be in a moment where our society is so far from recognizing reality and recognizing that we are finite, contingent beings that depend upon our limitations to define us. And that if we can live inside of those limitations, we can live really well. But outside of those limitations, we're really, we, we end up harming ourselves in, in all kinds of ways. Yeah, so I'd say two things in response to that. First is that with regard to our finitude, the problem with viewing humanity as, or, and ourselves as endless possibility is that t- possibility and maintaining possibility forecloses actuality. Hmm right? And the converse is also true. If you become one thing, you're foreclosing many other possibilities. And we don't like that as a culture. We want to say, well, you could be whatever you want. You could be anything. You could be everything. But maintaining that means not ever really becoming much of anything. So back to sex in the dating market, keeping your options open forecloses the possibility of ever forming a deeper, longer Mm. term, well, a marriage. (laughs) But, you know, you could reverse engineer it from, which I think Emma does a little bit, well, commitment and love and concern for the other person. Okay, so we're just recreating marriage. And then that brings me... Yeah, the, the closest she gets to a solution is something she calls uh, radical empathy. It, it, I, I don't have a super strong philosophical background, but she, she draws a little bit on Immanuel Kant. And I, I think she may, she has a pretty juvenile understanding of Kant, but she, she argues that basically if you just appreciate the other person and you, you think about the other person, then you'll do better. It's, it's really thin. <laughs> But it, it's it moving that. in the same direction. Well, and I think we get back to marriage. Yeah. yeah. Well, then I would say, continuing on from that, and then tying it back to questions of identity and education, the culture is afraid to, or maybe we're unable to decide, what do we want to teach children mm. is a normative ideal. What should you want to be? in your romantic relationships, in your family relationships? What should you want to be as a man or as a woman? Those are questions that we're either afraid to ask or we can't agree on. But that's where you're seeing this conflict in education arise is, at least in large part, well, you can't say this because that's heteronormative, cis-normative, you know, patriarchal or whatever. But what if all those things that you're not supposed to say because they fall under those forbidden categories actually direct us towards what is the good life in our time on this earth? Mm. That's a great question. Uh, and 
And probably, honestly, another uh, great transition to uh, to what I think is going to be my last question. But that 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 might that might change. Um, but I, I think this is my last question. Um, so, uh, if if people like, well, I want to kind of bring us back around to a question of hope because we've been a little gloomy in our discussion mm-hmm. so far. Well, we've been talking about gloomy topics in a a gloomy uh, the gloomy era of Western civilization. Uh, but Dr. Blake, where would you point to as a source of hope? Uh, for uh, if, if the West is per- just possibly recognizing that, in fact, the sexual revolution has caused substantial problems. And if we're starting to recognize those problems, where can we look to to find hope for better answers to lead to happier lives? Well, I think, ironically, you might look for hope in misery. In and the reason I say that is because the devil will promise you the world, but he wants to give you hell. Mm. He, right? And you can look at that in a Christian perspective with literal evil spiritual forces, or you could simply take it in a more metaphorical way in that evil and poor choices tend to inflict misery, not only on others, but also on oneself. Plato, we talked about the H. Greeks not long ago. Plato spends a lot of time, especially in the Republic, calculating just how miserable, he cheats a little bit mathematically, but just how miserable the tyrant actually is. Mm. A man who seems like he has it all, but is in fact a slave to his own master passion, who can trust nobody around him, who is just beset by desire and fear and cannot be virtuous or content or happy. So I would say misery, pain, can serve a very important function to alert us that there is a problem. And I think it is starting to. The party is over. I mean, I remember the 90s, it, you know, and I've read about previous years, but you know, the Clinton years, it was a party, it was great. And now we're sort of looking back and saying it was actually exploitative and degrading in a lot of ways. Mm. And we're starting to pick up on the ways in which the sexual revolution, just the unbridled indulgence has made people miserable. And that is creating an impetus to look elsewhere. And I think that Emma's book, weak as it may be Mm -hmm. in places, is certainly a sign that there's an audience for that. I think Michelle Goldberg's columns, I picked on her a few times recently, and she's not ready to give up liberalism or liberal feminism, but she's realizing that there is a problem. And I think you can see the cracks appearing in the sexual revolution. And there may then be hope that people will say, well, wait, what should I be doing? How should we be living? if this is not going to bring us happiness. I think that's a really helpful way to analyze that and think through those issues. Uh, It reminds me of uh, a book I read several years ago by Francis Schaeffer, uh, The God Who Is There. Uh, I had to read it for an apologetics class at Southeastern Mm -hmm. Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, Schaeffer argued that the most effective apologetic um, uh, does what he called, uh, it blows the roof off. (laughs) 
of other people. He, uh, he, he mixed his metaphors a little bit, but he talked about people walking as if they had roofs over their head and they're missing the sky, the fullness of the real. Mm-hmm. And so rather than the apologist going around telling people you're wrong, you're wrong, and you're wrong, uh, a more effective approach was to attempt to explode the pre- their, their presuppositions and to explode the assumptions that they were making. And then all of a sudden, uh, natural rationality would take over and all of a sudden people would perceive far more because they start to question their own presuppositions. Uh, it, it seems to me that we're at a point where, and I, I agree with you about Imba's book, I think that's the redeeming quality of it, if there is one, that it, it does it does just kind of throw up a huge red flag and say there is a lot of pain and suffering here. And that pain and suffering can be incredibly illustrative. I mean, it can it mm-hmm. pain teaches us not to burn our hands. It teaches us not to hit our fingers with a hammer. Uh, pain can be a great teacher because uh, it, it, it teaches us that we're doing something that we don't want to do. And, and hopefully that pushes us back towards sources of truth, back to sources of reality. Uh, there is a there, there are there are great riches of truth that can help us all live uh, much more full lives. Uh, well, Dr. Blake, I think we are pretty close on our, our time for, for tonight's um, discussion. Uh, where can people find and follow your work online? So they can go to different places I write for. You've mentioned that, the Federalist Public Discourse, a few others. But Ethics and Public Policy Center has a website, and they post work by their various fellows and scholars. And there is a page of mine on there. You can also look at the work by a lot of other great people there from Ryan Anderson, Alexandra de Saint-Dismar, Ed Whalen, George Weigel, many other wonderful people working there. Um, so you can find me there. You can also find me on Twitter. I only recently joined. I'm still not quite sure about it, but. Um, We're all wondering Blake, if Elon Musk is really going to do anything. Who, who really knows? I mean, yeah. it could have all been a stunt. But N Blake EPPC. Um, if somebody uh, give us wants give us a handle one more time. N Blake EPPC. Um, Wonderful. Somebody's on the bird website. Excellent. I'll be sure to tag you on everything when the uh, when the episode airs, uh, and and uh, hopefully our our, uh, our our thriving. Uh, I think we've got one watcher on the live stream, and uh, I I broke a hundred followers last month. I was very excited. So. It's uh, hopefully we'll, we'll send maybe some of those hundred followers your way for whatever value that that has. Uh, well, Dr. Blake, thank you so much for coming on the Optimistic Curmudgeon tonight. This has been a delightful conversation uh, and, and hopefully uh, of, of value to our listeners. Uh, it's been great to benefit from your insights. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, thank you, listeners and, and watchers for joining us for another episode of the Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Nathaniel Blake, postdoctoral fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and senior contributor to The Federalist. If you like this episode and uh, and or enjoyed this podcast uh, or and the live stream, uh, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another conversation on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. 
Uh, we're on Twitter at OptimisticC3, on Instagram at OptimisticCurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at Facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, OptimisticCurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good, love the true, and pursue the beautiful.